host, well, I want to invite you to grab a Bible and with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm still trying to reconcile the fact that I almost left the kids in here during the David and Bathsheba sermon. What are the odds? We would not have a seating problem next week if I did that. So thanks, Hunter, for, for getting my back, bro. I appreciate you. Um, all right, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. Um, as you turn there, I want to share this. In the early 1900s, I read a story about this this week, a newspaper in London put out a survey to its readers, survey to its readers asking a simple question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? They wanted people to respond in London. What do you think is wrong with the world? And so, as you might predict, they got all sorts of different responses. Some people said poverty is what's wrong with the world. The fact that the rich are so rich and the poor are so poor. Some people thought economics, the system was wrong with the world. Some people thought world hunger was wrong, racism, war. Some people thought Dallas Cowboys fans were what was wrong with the world. I'm just kidding, man. I saw that jersey back there. Praise God, man. I'm glad you're here. Uh, they didn't say Dallas Cowboys fans. Um, all sorts of different answers that you might expect. People saying, what's wrong with the world? All kinds of injustices, all kinds of evils. And the responses went on and on until a Christian apologist and philosopher by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote in and answered the question, what is wrong with the world? And I want to read his answer. Chesterton wrote, Dear sirs, I am. In other words, I am what is wrong with the world. We are what is wrong with the world. In this four-word response, Chesterton cut to the heart of one of the most painful and humbling and eye-opening realizations that I think we could ever make. We are what is wrong with the world. More specifically, our sin. The fact that we are sinners, our sin is the biggest problem we have. And our sin is the source of all of the world's problems and justices and evils and wrongs. All of it can be boiled down to the core fact that at the end of the day, we're sinners. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's not good news for us. And listen, I say that tongue in cheek. I know that no one comes to church in December wanting to hear about sin. We want to talk about baby Jesus in a manger, and I promise next week we're going to get there. But I want us to see this morning that our biggest problem in the world today is not what's going on outside, it's what's going on inside. The biggest problem, or not external circumstances, the biggest problem we have is the indwelling sin inside of us. And that the reason we celebrate Christmas the reason we'll celebrate Christmas next week is because God has made a way to once and for all deal finally with our biggest problem. He's made a way for us to conquer our sin. Now, this is week three of our Christmas series, and a look at the unlikely family tree of Jesus. And as we've seen these past couple of weeks, God has intentionally placed stories of both sin and redemption all over the line and the lineage of Christ, which shows us, church, that God is not put off by our mess and our brokenness and our dysfunction, but rather God steps into the mess, steps into our mess to bring about redemption and healing. And he's going to do that in our story this morning. In Matthew's genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1, we see 
see that the Messianic line goes through a man named David, who fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And even how she's identified in Matthew's genealogy is a bad sign. She's not David's wife. And 2 Samuel tells us that Uriah's wife was a woman named Bathsheba. Now, I do want to warn you, this is a heavy passage. It's a really heavy passage. And throughout our time in it, we're going to see a lot of ourselves in the life and the actions of David. And so before we dive in, I want to be really upfront with my goal and my aim in preaching this sermon. It's going to be a little more practical than usual, more application heavy than usual. And I'm going to ask God for two things. One, I'm asking God this morning that by the time we leave here today, we would have a greater awareness, church, of how dangerous and deceitful our our sin is. And then we would see that none of us, myself included, are immune to its effects. There's not one person in here this morning that's better than David. And we're going to take a moment to sit in that, really to feel the weight of that and to think through how we might be unintentionally leaving doors open for sin to creep into our lives. The second thing I'm asking God for this morning is I want us to see a fuller, better picture of how good God's grace really is, how sweet God's grace is for us, how good God's grace is and brothers and sisters around us that he's given us to help us fight sin, how good God's grace is in the discipline and and, and grace of repentance, of turning away from our sin. God will bring about restoration in this story. And if you're stuck in sin this morning, if you're wrestling with sin this morning, God can bring about restoration in your story, but it's going to take some painful heart work today, and it's going to take a willingness to fall on our faces before the Lord Jesus and ask for mercy. We're going to see David go through that process today. And by God's grace, when we get to that point, we'll then see God step down into the muck and the mire to bring about something beautiful and whole and healthy. And in doing so, God gives us a picture of the very gospel itself. Tim Keller put it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Yes and amen. And I want to show us both this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into the word. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this time as we open up your word, and we want to learn from you. We want to learn about you, God. We want to learn about ourselves, Lord. God, you tell us your word is alive and active. And so I pray, God, that it would do what it does, that it would pierce our hearts, our thoughts, our intentions this morning, that we would be laid bare before it, God, and that your word would accomplish your purposes in your people. As we've been praying all morning, all week, give us hearts to receive and Holy Spirit in us. I pray that you would help us to change, to conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, number one in your notes, the deceitfulness of sin. We're going to see in 1 Samuel 11, the deceitfulness of sin, and then we'll turn the corner in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 12. So let's read together the first two verses of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, 
The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. All right, here's what's going on. So David, the shepherd boy who took down Goliath, has become the king of Israel. And this was a high point in Israel's history. For the most part, at the time, the people feared the Lord, the army was powerful, and David, who the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, had consolidated both power and wealth in Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made a covenant with David, promising to establish his throne forever, making it clear that there would always be someone from the line of David who was ruling and reigning over God's people. And we know, Christians, that this promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So here's the point. In 2 Samuel 11, things are about as good as they're going to get for Israel. They have a godly king. They're safe and secure, walking with the Lord. They have all the power and the prosperity that they could want. And then it happens. Verse 2, literally it happened late one afternoon when David was at home, when all of the other kings had gone off to war. And these two verses show us the beginning of a slide into sin that would lead to disaster for David because they show us letter A. You have this in your notes, compromise. Compromise. At the beginning of the chapter, before David does anything outrageous, we see something far more subtle than sin. We see compromise. Here's what I mean. Since he was a kid, David had been a warrior He had protected his father's sheep from lions and bears. And then as he grew, he battled Philistines. He built himself a kingdom. David was a man of action and a man of valor. Now, all of a sudden, he's back at the palace all alone while everyone else is off to war. While the other men are fighting, David is literally taking a nap in the middle of the day. The text says he rose from his couch. Now, No judgment to any nap takers out there, but this was not a good place for David to be. He was idle. And because he wasn't doing what God had created him to do, he was restless, unfulfilled, and probably bored, which leads to this late afternoon walk on the rooftop. Now, back then, his house would have been situated at the highest point of the city, which meant that on the rooftop, David could walk around and basically see everything including a woman bathing, probably in the fenced courtyard outside of her house. Now, before we read what happens next, I want to pause here just for a moment. I think if we're honest with each other, it can be pretty easy to see ourselves in David here, even in just the first two verses. Remember, David hasn't sinned yet. He's just stayed home, taken a nap, and he happens to see a beautiful woman. He still has a chance to instantly look away or to pursue righteousness. But the problem, church, is that intentionally or not, David has put himself in a really vulnerable spot, a spot where he's opened himself up to temptation and opened himself up to sin. 
And every Christian in this, within the sound of my voice knows this from experience. When this process starts, when we allow ourselves to be put in situations where we know we'll be tempted, it becomes all the more difficult to actually fight the sin itself. It's a, a downward spiral beginning with the first compromise. James chapter 1 puts it this way, James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James uses the word lure here, so think with me about fishing for a moment. We put something flashy and shiny at the end of our lines to attract, to tempt the fish, and in doing so, we conceal the hook, and the fish sees the bright colors and the shiny lure, and he bites, not realizing that the hook is what will trap it and kill it. Listen, the, the downward spiral of sin works the same way. The flash of temptation leads to desire, desire leads to sin, and sin leads to death. So work with me just for a moment. Where are you in your life right now leaving room for temptation. If you'll allow me, where are your rooftops? Those areas in your life that aren't necessarily sinful, but certainly not helpful. Maybe for you, it's late nights on your laptop after your spouse has gone to bed. And you know, as well as I do, there's nothing wrong with surfing the internet on our laptops, but you also know that it can open the door to a whole lot more. Maybe it's that group of two or three friends that you have, that you love being with, but every time you get together with them, you realize very quickly the conversation turns to gossip, doing nothing but speaking badly about brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know that in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with friendship. God loves friendship. And you might like those people a lot, but when you hang out with them, you open the door to real and legitimate sin. See, here's what I've noticed about us, myself included here, when it comes to areas of compromise in our lives, we tend to ask the same sort of questions. How far type questions. I'll give you an example. How far is too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it's sin? How much can I drink before it's drunkenness? How much can I hide from the IRS before it's considered stealing? And these questions reveal a desire in us that wants to get as close as possible to the line without stepping over it. We know that sin is bad, but sometimes getting real close to it feels really good. And, and here's the problem with this way of thinking, church. God has not saved us so that we can flirt with sin. God has saved us so that we can run from it, to flee from it, and to see its ability to ruin our lives and to bring death and destruction to everything we care about. So our mindset as Christians has to go from how close can I get to how far can I run. And this might mean creating some pretty awkward and stringent boundaries in your life. Boundaries that might get you judged and ridiculed even by other Christians. Listen, I, I pray this over our congregation pretty much every day. We have to be a people who fear our own ability to sin and distrust our own ability to resist it. We cannot manage sin, keeping it in a corner and hoping that it'll never amount to any real consequences. Sin doesn't work that way. Left unchecked, it'll ruin our lives. In areas of compromise, long walks on the rooftop are surefire ways to bring about disaster. 
In our passage today, this happens. Compromise leads to letter B, the crime. Compromise leads to the crime itself. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And she returned to her house. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So the compromised church of staying home and lazing around for David leads to the crime of adultery. What happens here is actually pretty simple. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, David sees, he covets, and then he takes. He sees Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah, one of David's mighty men. And he covets, he sends for her, and then he takes. He commits adultery with her, which was a crime punishable by death according to the law of Moses. And not only has David committed adultery, but he's abused the authority that God has given him. And as often as the case with sin, it brings about consequences that he doesn't see coming. Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and David panics. Because all of a sudden, this little manageable sin of looking at a woman from the rooftop is now compounded on itself and is threatening to ruin and destroy his life. Again, church, we can't manage sin. It always comes back to bite us. I read a story a couple years ago about a woman in Pennsylvania. Um, she was at her breakfast table looking out in her backyard and a bear cub wanders in from the woods into her backyard. She's looking at the bear cub, waiting for the mama bear to come out and the bear cub's fooling around in her backyard for a while and never comes out. And so this woman does what no one literally on the face of the earth should do and decides, I'm going to adopt this bear cub as a pet and I'm gonna build an enclosure for it in my backyard. And so she did that. She builds this enclosure for the bear cub in her backyard, starts going to PetSmart, buying 50-pound bags of dog food. They don't sell bear food at PetSmart. And she raises this bear cub as her pet. She speaks about it like it's a child. I mean, the bear eats popcorn out of her hand at times. Now, if you have any level of discernment at all, you probably know where this story is going, right? It's actually tragic. Years go by, the bear stops being a cub and grows into this wild animal and really is tragic. One day, the woman is in the enclosure, cleaning out the enclosure, and her pet bear turns on her and mauls her to death. Bear cubs don't stay little. They turn into wild animals, ripping us apart. And, and church, our sin works the same way. Our sin works the same way. In verse 5, the bear is turning on David. And he's realizing that this sin has the potential to end his life. Adultery at the time, again, punishable by, punishable by death. And so in the remainder of chapter 11, we see letter C. Letter C, David's attempt to cover up his sin. So we see compromise, crime, and now cover up. I'm feeling real Baptist this morning. There's nothing new under the sun, church. Think back with me again to the garden. When Adam and Eve sin, what do they do next? Someone tell me, what do they do next? They hide. They hide. And they actually, they try to cover themselves. They sew together fig leaves to try to hide and cover themselves from the presence of God. As if you could ever do that. And David does the exact same thing. He wants to hide what he's done. Listen, in this process, in this downward spiral of sin, in a room this size, I know this, some of you are right here with David in letter C this morning. 
You're in this part of the process. You're hiding, doing whatever you can to cover up your sin. And this is instinctual. There's something innate in us that when we mess up, we want to cover up. And we do whatever we can to try to avoid the responsibility and the consequences of what we've done. Now, if this is you this morning, then hear me for a moment. My heart grieves for you. It grieves for you. Why? Because you're miserable. Like this hiding, this covering up process goes against the grain of what it means to be in Christ. And if you're covering up your sin, all while coming here on a Sunday, trying to walk and talk like a good Christian, then eventually you'll run yourself into the ground. This isn't how you're meant to live. So understand this. Our sin will either drive us further out into the darkness or closer into the mercy of the Father. And the choice is yours. And at the end of our time this morning, we're actually going to have an opportunity to run to the Father, to bring that sin before him and experience the tidal wave of mercy that God offers us. But in this passage, initially, David chooses the darkness. He succumbs to this self-preservation instinct, and he allows his sin to compound on itself. We see this in the text. He devises a plan to bring Uriah back from battle. He figures that if he can get Uriah to go back home to Bathsheba in nine months, everyone's gonna think that the baby was Uriah's. But we see this, Uriah doesn't do it. See, unlike David, Uriah refuses to compromise. Something I found really interesting this week. Earlier on in David's story in 1 Samuel 21, David and his men are on the run and fighting. And he makes it clear that when they're out on an expedition, they keep themselves from women. Basically, for David and his men, there was no fraternizing during wartime. And they do this to remain consecrated, set apart and holy, hoping to earn the favor and the blessing of the Lord. So get this, church. In trying to get Uriah to go home to his wife, David was trying to get him to compromise to his commitment for the Lord. And trying to get him to compromise on his commitment to the people. And Uriah wouldn't do it. So verse 14, David sets his final plan into motion. Let's read it together. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David realizes, church, that the only way he's going to escape this situation blamelessly is if Uriah dies, and so he sends Uriah back into battle, basically carrying his own death warrant. And Joab, the commander of the army, obeys the king. Uriah is killed, and at the end of the chapter, David brings Bathsheba into his house to be his wife. And verse 27 offers us some commentary. The thing that David had done displease the Lord. And this leads us to letter D, the final step in this process, consequences. Because of David's sin, God makes it clear that the child in Bathsheba's womb will die. And seven days after he was born, this happens. Instead of dying for his own sin, David's son dies in his place. Again, church, I want us to see this. The compromise leads to the crime, which leads to the cover-up, which brought about consequences in the life of David and the people around him. I told you, this is a heavy story this morning, a heartbreaking story of real sin and real people. But I want us to see something. This is where the story could have ended. 
It could have ended with death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is what, church? Death. The wages of sin is death. And David has brought this on himself by flirting with sin and then giving in to sin and then compounding it by covering sin up. And this passage shows us the worst of humanity. And honestly, it's, it's a mirror. It's a reflection of what every single person in this room is capable of. I said this at the beginning of our time. There's no one here this morning that's above or better than David. But listen, this passage also shows us something about God. It shows us something about the miracle-working God of the Bible. God does not let his people end their stories like this. Go back with me again to the garden. Adam and Eve, they sin, they try to hide, and then what does God do? God runs after them, church. God runs after them. Adam, where are you? God doesn't let Adam stay in his pseudo-covering, trying to hide from the presence of God. God, in his mercy, pursues Adam. And God, in his mercy, pursues us. And God, in his mercy, is going to pursue David. When David blows up his life with adultery and murder in chapter 11, God is going to run after him in chapter 12. This is number two in your notes. We've seen the deceitfulness of sin. Now we see, church, the beauty of grace. We see the beauty of grace. We're going to see how God responds. Look at how chapter 12 opens, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet sent by God to bring about restoration where there was rebellion, to bring grace where there was deceit. But here's the thing. When we hear the word grace, we tend to expect softness, tolerance, maybe even comfort. And we're not going to see that from Nathan. Instead of comfort, Nathan brings confrontation. And that in and of itself, the confrontation, is the means of grace that God uses to restore David. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read it together. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 4. We'll keep walking through the story. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan comes to David, tells him this sob story of the rich man taking the one poor little lamb from the poor man. And David hears this story and blinded by his own sin, he's outraged at the perceived injustice. Look at verse 5. He says, the rich man deserves to die. Anyone seeing the irony here? I think David sees it. I know Nathan sees it. But here's the thing. Most of us in this room, I would be willing to bet, get pretty fired up about injustice. We don't like injustice. Christians, I think, as a whole, are pretty good at standing up against injustice. And David's no different. But again, I want us to see ourselves in this story. It's much easier, church, to work ourselves up over injustices in the world than it is to come face to face with the sin in our lives. It's always worse when it's someone else's sin. 
And in verse 7, Nathan drops the hammer on him in one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. He says, David, you are the man. You're the man. You're the one who sinned. You took the little lamb when this other guy had the entire flock. You're the one who killed Uriah. You're the one who covered it up. And David is stunned, church, but his response in verse 13 is so pivotal for us. David says, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. The glass ceiling is shattered for him. God uses Nathan to wake him up. And in doing so, we see letter A. Grace in confrontation. Grace in confrontation. God, in his grace, uses confrontation to bring about an awareness of the seriousness of sin in the life of David. Now, here's where this text almost applies itself, but I want to connect the dots just in case. Every single person in this room, every single person needs this in our lives. We need a Nathan someone who loves us enough to rip the band-aid off and to call us on our sin. As your pastor, I need this in my life. I know that I have blind spots and areas where I need trusted brothers to speak into my life to pull me closer towards Jesus. Listen, intentionally ignoring a brother's sin and allowing him to slide into disaster because we fear godly, awkward confrontation is not loving. It's selfish. And we want to be the kind of church where in love we take a vested interest where we hold each other accountable in our own walks with Jesus. And don't get me wrong, Coastal, these conversations can be incredibly difficult, but they have to happen. Listen, the enemy wants you to live in isolation. The enemy does not want you known here in this local church. The enemy wants you thinking that you have to get all of your ducks in a row before you can help someone else's ducks. You've got to be perfect before you can help. The enemy wants you to fear being perceived as judgmental. And you know what else the enemy wants? The enemy wants you easily offended. I want you to repeat after me. I will not get offended. I will not get offended. Satan wants us to take offense when other people poke and point out our sin. And he wants the emotion of that offense to override the truth behind the poking. You tracking with me? It's a strategy that he uses. And in this church, we have to be aware of that. Let me tell you something about our church for a moment. If you're new here and you're just checking out Coastal, looking for a church home, I'm hoping that this will be clarifying for you one way or another. When you decide to commit and covenant with Coastal in membership, you know what you're doing? You're signing up to get sinned against. And I say that really meaning it. When you join a small group, which is how we live this out, you're signing up to get sinned against. Why is this the case? Because this church is made up of sinners. Sinners who, by God's grace, are committed to loving and leading and pointing one another towards the love of Jesus so that we might see and know and enjoy Jesus more clearly. That means when you covenant with us in membership, you are welcoming in other people to care for and watch over your own sin because they love you. Here in Williamsburg, we cannot and will not watch each other slide into life-altering sin without taking action. It's 
too important. We have to love each other and be the kind of church that does more than that because we'll see God in his grace uses these types of confrontations to bring about letter B, grace in repentance. God uses confrontation by his grace to bring about repentance. To repent, church, simply means to turn back or to turn away from sin. And we see this very clearly in the life of David. We saw earlier that when we fall into the depths of our sin, it usually does one of two things. We either hide from God or we run to God. And David, after this confrontation with Nathan, is done hiding. He runs to God in true and genuine repentance, proven first by his life. He proves it with his life. He never falls into sexual sin again. And then he proves it by his heart. David writes Psalm 51 after this conversation, after this confrontation with Nathan. I'm going to read it, the first four verses for us. And I want you to note David's brokenness over his own sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is our model, church, in heart and life. It shows us a man that has a full understanding of both the depths of his sin and his need of mercy from a Savior. And when this happens, when God brings us to this point, we see finally letter C, grace in new life. Grace in new life. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Once again, we see God bringing beauty out of brokenness, restoration out of rebellion. Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, would go on to continue the line and the lineage of Jesus and we know this as Christians, Jesus is ultimately the ones who gives us new life. Jesus is the one who every story in scripture points to, including this one. Listen, God cares about our restoration from sin so much that he gave us Jesus, who in every way is the true and better David. Think about it for a moment. David left his home, or David stayed home, instead of going to battle stayed home instead of going to battle. Jesus left his heavenly home to win the battle against sin once and for all. David took someone's life to cover up his own sin. Jesus laid down his life to cover over our sin. As a result of his sin, David's son would die. As a result of our sin, God's son would die. David took a bride that was not rightfully his. Jesus bought for himself a bride that would be his forever, a bride composed of people like me and people like you. And so, Coastal Church, I want us to be the kind of bride who despises our sin and marvels at mercy. Listen, Jesus came to die for your 2 Samuel 11 moments. Jesus came to die for our very worst moments. Jesus died for our compromises. He died for our crimes and for our cover-ups. He died 
for the secrets that right now you think you're the only one who knows about them. Jesus knows those secrets, and he died on the cross for those sins. He knows the worst of you this morning. He sees the worst of you this morning. Jesus knows that you and I are what is wrong with the world, and yet Jesus, knowing all of that, still loves us in spite of ourselves. Unfathomable mercy. We know Romans 6.23. We quoted it earlier. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Keller, more sinful. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. There's real darkness in our sin and our secrecy. Real darkness. We see the worst of that in this text today. And in this text today, we also see what happens when God grabs a hold of our hearts and brings about mercy. And so here's how I want to close. I want to invite our prayer team up. We should have a couple people under uh, both sides of the stage. I want to invite them up. If you have something that you want to talk about this morning, when we dismiss or even when we're singing, come talk to us. Come talk to me. I would love to hear your story. Again, there's great power in bringing stuff into the light. That's a process that God initiates and God sees through. If you need prayer this morning, come pray with us. I know, church, that the Christmas season is a difficult one for a lot of people, and I know it's a heavy text today. And so even if this stirred something up in you, or you're like, Colin, I want to talk, I need to pray, come do that. Don't leave hastily this morning. We want to care for your soul well. So let's do this, church. Let me invite you to stand. I'll pray for us. Go ahead and stand. I'll pray for us, and then we'll go out singing this morning. God, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus Christ, the true and better David, the one who was without sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. I thank you for this story, Lord. It's a mirror in many ways to my own soul. God, you know the worst of me, and yet you love me. You know me better than anyone, and you love me better than anyone. That's true for every single soul in this room. God, there are no secrets before you. You see it all, Lord. I, I think about David. He thought he got away with it, God, and you ran after him to call him out of his sin. So God, I pray that you would do that for many, many people in this church this morning. That whatever is under the rugs this morning would come out. That whatever is under our tents this morning would be exposed so that there could be light and forgiveness and restoration and healing, God, because you are the God who brings beauty out of brokenness. So I pray right now, real specifically for that person in the room this morning who feels like I'm talking to them. God, I pray that they would not hide anymore. I know it must be miserable. And so, Father, I pray for mercy for them. I pray for courage for them. I pray that they would grab someone, grab me, someone on the prayer team, a trusted friend, someone in their family, someone they came with this morning, and they'd say, hey, I need to talk to you this week. I need to talk to you today because I don't want to live in this darkness anymore. And so, Father, I pray for Nathans all across this room, God, that you would use us to be a people who lovingly confront and a people who are willing to be humbly confronted. All for your glory, Jesus. And so, God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for our time together as a church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.